Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It begins with a blast of thunder. A sepia tone book fills the screen as a shadowy hand flips slowly through the pages. Over the next two minutes, it's a visual assault of shaky titles and disturbing, violent scenes that pop on and off the screen so quickly that they're almost subliminal messages. All the while, a remixed version of Closer by Nine Inch Nails ominously builds in the background. It's like you're seeing inside the mind of a serial killer. And that's exactly what the young, edgy director of this 1995 movie was hoping to achieve. With his unique vision, the obsessive auteur left his mark on the 90s like no one else. Through films like this one, as well as controversial commercials and high-budget music videos, he styled the decade. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're talking about director David Fincher. Looking back, it seems almost inevitable that David Fincher would get into the movie business. He was born in Denver, but his family moved to Northern California in the mid-60s when he was a young boy. His neighbors included famed director George Lucas, who before creating Star Wars made the classic movie American Graffiti just down the street from Fincher's house. After high school, Fincher got a low-level position at Lucas's visual effects company, Industrial Light and Magic. But he quickly felt bored and stifled. Then in 1985, at the age of 23, Fincher went out on his own and landed an opportunity to direct a commercial. It was actually a public service announcement, or PSA, for the American Cancer Society. And with just a $7,000 budget, it probably shouldn't have been the thing that launched a career. But as you'll soon come to learn, David Fincher has always done things a little bit differently. The ad opens with a spacey synth chord and the faint sound of a heartbeat. As the camera pans up, viewers see a fetus floating inside an amniotic sac. And that very real-looking fetus is smoking a cigarette. Would you give a cigarette to your unborn child? You do. Every time you smoke while you're pregnant. Pregnant mothers, please, don't smoke. The smoking fetus ad, as it became known, was like nothing anyone had seen before. A low-budget cancer PSA that evoked 80s blockbuster movie vibes. Fincher had reached incredibly high with his first project. In aesthetic terms, you know, he reached about as high as a director of that generation can, because he reached for Stanley Kubrick. He reached for the star child and the imagery at the end of 2001, yoked to this kind of insolent, punky, you know, image of a smoking baby. That's Adam Naiman, author of the book David Fincher, Mind Games. He says the smoking fetus ad was a major breakthrough for the young director. If you believe in the idea that brevity and concision are a are a thing to aspire to, I wouldn't say anything as dumb as like, you know, that's the best thing Fincher ever made, but you could argue in terms of brevity, it's one of his most perfect works. But not everyone was a fan. NBC and CBS chose not to air the evocative ad, 
complaining that it was too graphic. A network spokesperson said the fetus in particular was quite shocking to look at, and it might offend viewers. For David Fincher, the commercial became like a resume for the kind of work he could do. If you were looking for an edgy commercial or music video, he was your guy. After the smoking fetus ad, he went on to direct a bonkers music video for Rick Springfield's top 40 hit, Bop Till You Drop, which, among other things, involved an alien slave rebellion. Then in 1986, Fincher joined a group of like-minded movie makers in Los Angeles, and together they founded Propaganda Films. The goal of the company was to take a different approach to Hollywood's slow-paced, high-cost movie business. They were soon known for their cutting-edge work and a roster of creative upstarts. Early on, they produced the 1990 David Lynch movie Wild at Heart, and they helped get his TV show Twin Peaks off the ground. But initially, propaganda was mostly known for a different medium, music videos. Keep in mind, music videos in the 80s and 90s were pretty huge. They could make or break a musician's career. And when they were released on MTV or Much Music, it was an event similar to a movie opening. So to be the best at making music videos held a certain amount of cachet. And propaganda films, and Fincher in particular, soon became the best of the best. By 1990, one in three rock music videos made in the U.S. was made by propaganda films. And the money they made off videos helped them fund other film and TV projects. At its peak, the company was making about 150 videos a year for performers and bands like Madonna, U2, Prince, Guns N' Roses, and Paula Abdul. And their videos dominated award ceremonies in 1989 and 1990. In 89, David Fincher received three of five nominations for Best Music Video Direction at the VMAs. He was nominated for Jodie Watley's Real Love, Steve Winwood's Roll With It, and Madonna's Express Yourself, which came home the winner that night. Not just for Best Director, but also Best Art Direction and Cinematography. The video for Express Yourself is one of several collaborations between Madonna and Fincher, and is considered by many to be the best video of all time by The Material Girl. It cost over $5 million to make and was influenced by the 1927 film Metropolis by German director Fritz Lang. The aesthetic is surreal factories and sci-fi cityscapes with lots of steam and rain falling on shirtless male workers. It's an aesthetic that would show up in some of Fincher's later Hollywood movies. The director has said that making videos during this era was like operating a jukebox. You put money in one end and out pops a video. And in his case, really, really good ones. And I think that Fincher's calling card as a music video director is that even though he had some stylistic traits, certain kinds of lighting and use of focus, and uh, you know, he loved using images of electronics and, and technology, I mean, you can break it down and find a kind of a tourist reading to his music videos. They always serve the artist. And they showcase the artist in ways that are tremendously seductive. The next year at the 1990 VMAs, Fincher did it again. He received three out of four nominations for Best Video Direction. He was nominated for Don Henley's The End of the Innocence, 
Aerosmith's Janie's Got a Gun, and Madonna's Vogue, which was another winner for Fincher and another iconic video for Madonna. It took a dance form invented and perfected in New York's LGBTQ scene and made it mainstream at a time when the community was being ravaged by the AIDS crisis. Madonna and Fincher captured the joy and intricacies of the dance and blasted it on screens across the world. Fincher's vision can be seen all over music videos in the 80s and 90s. He made at least 55 and influenced countless others. But there was one iconic video that stands above the rest, and it ushered in the 90s as the new and exciting decade it would become. If you listen to the earlier History of the 90s episode on Supermodels, you already know that Fincher directed the groundbreaking video for George Michael's Freedom 90. It kicked off the era of the supermodel by featuring five of the original six women who dominated catwalks, magazines, and pretty much all of pop culture. Michael was at a turning point in his career and was trying to be considered a serious artist after years as a successful pop star. He pushed back against his label in a number of ways, including refusing to appear in a video for his new song, Freedom 90. So models Naomi Campbell, Christy Turlington, Linda Evangelista, Cindy Crawford, and Tatiana Petitz were brought in to replace him. The way Fincher captured the models lip-syncing the lyrics and evoked images from Michael's past, like the leather jacket going up in flames, was pure magic. Adam Naiman says you could even make the case that the Freedom 90 video was the best thing Fincher ever directed. There's such an interesting weave of performance where they're lip syncing a song by an artist who to some extent is kind of coming out. They're almost the, the vessel for Michael to liberate himself from this previous kind of macho persona. And they're taking such pleasure, the models are, in a performance that's giving them a voice because they're meant to be silent. There's something about how complex and fun and, and ultimately kind of pleasure-centered about that video. It's a, it's a kind of landmark. Fincher's dominance in the music video world also made him a highly sought-after director by advertising agencies. And in the early 90s, Fincher and Propaganda Films made a number of buzzworthy TV commercials, including a bunch for Nike. This black-and-white commercial featuring Charles Barkley was an homage to 1930s Hollywood and included an original song written by Chuck D of Public Enemy. Fincher also made a series of ads for Nike in 1992 that used the Beatles song Instant Karma. Those ads were a follow-up to the iconic and controversial Nike commercials in 1987 that used the Beatles song Revolution. They were partly responsible for making the running shoe company the billion-dollar brand it is today. Like most of the commercials Fincher made, the Nike ads were a lot like a music video, and they were a test run for the movies he would soon be making. When you're as hot as David Fincher was in the 80s and early 90s, making award-winning music videos and commercials, eventually Hollywood is going to come knocking. And they did, in a very big way. In 1992, Fincher was brought on board to direct Alien 3. At the age of 27, 
he'd been tapped to make the third installment of a hugely successful movie franchise. With a reported budget of $50 million, it was the most expensive movie ever given to someone so young. But he wasn't the first choice for the studio. 20th Century Fox wanted James Cameron, who had directed the previous film, but he was unavailable. A couple of other directors were brought on board, and each was let go after not seeing eye-to-eye with producers over the fate of the movie's main character, Ellen Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver. So when Fincher joined the beleaguered production, there was already a lot of baggage for the first-time movie director to deal with. In fact, he was forced to start shooting before the movie even had an ending. Still, Adam Neyman says, given the glossy, industrial, high-ceiling, cavernous aesthetic he had in so many of his music videos, Fincher could have been a good fit. Instead, it was a disaster right from the start, as the young director's onset perfectionism soon became a problem for producers, who felt he was wasting too much time and money getting small details right. As a result, production went over schedule and over budget. Even before Fincher showed up on set feeling like, you know, he was Orson Welles and that he should be able to do whatever he wanted, however he wanted it with his big budget, that movie's uh, uh, production was extremely messed up. You know, multiple iterations of the script. They didn't know that they were going to have Sigourney Weaver's participation. They're trying to live up to two of the best franchise science fiction movies ever made which is good if you want to make money because you have a fan base, but a lot of tension over how the story should be directed. On top of that, Fincher opted to take the franchise in a dark and dingy direction. The end result was a movie that underperformed at the box office and was widely panned by critics. But there were some that recognized what Fincher was capable of. Movie critic Roger Ebert, for one, called it one of the best-looking bad movies he had ever seen. Fincher has disavowed himself from Alien 3 and blames studio interference for the movie's terrible outcome. In 2009, he said it was the worst thing that ever happened to him, and no one hates Alien 3 more than he does. In fact, he said making the movie was like slitting his throat in slow motion. But Alien 3 offered some value for Fincher. Alien 3 is his rosebud. You know, he kept being pulled, you can't do it this way, or doing it this way is dumb. And instead of learning the lesson and, and, and giving up, it, it just, he doubled down. And that's the value of that movie and his artistic evolution. Alien 3 put a chip on Fincher's shoulder that would eventually help him make some of the most memorable movies of the 90s. In 1991, aspiring screenwriter Andrew Kevin Walker was working at Tower Records in New York City. And when he wasn't on the job, Walker was busy writing the first draft of a movie about a serial killer who is fixated on the seven deadly sins. When Walker finished the first draft, he sent it to David Cope, another screenwriter who at the time was working on the script of a little movie called Jurassic Park. He wanted Cope to take a look and let him know what he thought about the script. But what Walker heard wasn't what he expected. Cope called Walker and told him he needed professional help. And he didn't mean a writing teacher. He meant a psychiatrist. Despite the concern about Walker's mental health, he was able to sell the script to New Line Cinema, the film studio behind the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. They had a few different directors look at the script, including David Fincher, who loved it. After the disaster of Alien 3, he said he would rather get colon cancer than make another movie. 
But after reading Walker's script, Fincher decided to take a leap with the movie Seven. He knew intuitively with that material that it suited his real talent, which is for procedure, structure, schedule. And there's also something so misanthropic about that movie's worldview and so much about control and showmanship and just kind of like shocking an audience. Because it's about a character who's trying to shock an audience. He's trying to shock a society into a kind of an awareness. I think Fincher was like, this is my chance. And if on Alien 3, things about his methods and his his style were in tension with the material, in 7, it was just a perfect fit. Fincher agreed to make 7 with one condition. He wanted to keep in the ending as it was written by screenwriter Andrew Kevin Walker. The studio wasn't so sure how the famous box scene would go over, but Fincher insisted and eventually won out. The result was one of the most talked about movie endings of the 90s. When the serial killer character, played by Kevin Spacey, has a box with a special gift delivered to the police detective, played by Brad Pitt. Put the gun I down. I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Because I envy your normal life. Put the gun down, David. It seems that envy is my sin. No, what's in the box? Not you give me the what's gun. What's in the fucking box? Give me the gun. If you've seen Seven, you'll recall the movie is dark and gritty. And it's pouring rain in nearly every outdoor scene except the final desert shot. The look and texture of the movie was achieved with torch-lit sets thanks to Fincher and by using a chemical process called bleach bypass, which leaves elements of silver in the film stock to increase the contrast and graininess. As for all the rain, that was actually because Brad Pitt had a limited 55-day shooting schedule with no contingency plan. So the production team came up with a plan to use rain machines in most of the exterior shots so that if it actually did rain, the shoot wouldn't be affected. When it was released, Seven was a huge hit, thanks in part to that surprise ending that Fincher insisted be kept in, but also because it dared to mix horror with a typical detective drama. Not only that, it was one of the first movies to really dive into the procedural science of forensic crime scene investigation. It was a true psychological thriller, and as a result, it changed the way serial killer movies and TV shows are made. And it inspired a number of copycats in the 90s and beyond, including the movies Kiss the Girls, The Bone Collector, and The Pledge, as well as TV shows like CSI, Luther, and True Detective. Seven also marked a change for some of the actors involved. For Morgan Freeman, it was the first time he tried on his new persona as a sage old mentor a role he has replicated in dozens of films since then. As for Brad Pitt, after Seven, he cemented his role as a legit leading man. And he was someone Fincher would turn to again before the 90s were over in another classic movie. Before we talk about that other Fincher-Pitt collaboration, There's another Fincher movie that came out in 1997 that's often forgotten, but really shouldn't be. The game stars Michael Douglas as a wealthy investment banker with an empty soul, who gets a strange birthday gift from his brother, played by Sean Penn. It's a voucher for a life-altering game put on by an organization called Consumer Recreation Services. It did okay at the box office and received some good reviews, Roger Ebert called it a moody, darkly funny nightmare that unfolds like a Hitchcockian single-player puzzle-based video game. 
And more recently, it was the first of Fincher's movies to be added to the Criterion Collection. But if you don't remember it or didn't even know it was a Fincher movie, you're not alone. That's because it had the misfortune of being bookended by two other Fincher movies that turned out to be two of the most talked about movies of the 1990s. In 1996, author Chuck Palahniuk released a book that touched on an increasing sense of dissatisfaction among young Gen X men. Growing up in the shadow of grandfathers who fought in World War II and fathers who fought in Vietnam, they struggled to find purpose. They longed for a defining moment. Polonik's book is a commentary on those feelings. It follows an unnamed narrator who's stuck in a crummy job, trapped by post-capitalist malaise in an apartment filled with IKEA furniture. That is, until he crosses paths with Tyler Durden, who's a handsome, charismatic soap salesman who lives life exactly the way he wants. Durden convinces the narrator that the only way to truly feel alive is by creating Fight Club, a secret club of men who meet in dark basements to beat the crap out of each other. The book flew under the radar, selling only about 5,000 copies in hardcover. But a copy did make its way to Laura Ziskin, the producer of Pretty Woman, who optioned the rights for just $10,000. Ziskin, who was working for 20th Century Fox, initially tried to get director David O. Russell on board for the project, But after reading the book, he passed, saying he just didn't get it. Next, she approached David Fincher. When he read Fight Club, he totally got it. Fincher, who was in his late 30s by then, says he saw the book as a rallying cry to beat back anger and malaise and sprint to the next evolution of ourselves. And he said it was easy for him to get swept away in just the sheer juiciness of it. So Fincher put aside his bad feelings about Alien 3 and agreed to make another movie with 20th Century Fox. But that doesn't mean there weren't problems on set. Fincher and actor Ed Norton, who played the unnamed narrator, frequently clashed over the tone of the movie. They both pictured it as a comedy, but Norton thought it should be more obviously funny. Well, Fincher thought it should be more subtle. The two men fought constantly about it, making the script their own fight club. And that often resulted in long breaks between scenes where other actors would wait around aimlessly. But the result was worth it. The first rule of fight club is, you do not talk about fight club. The second rule of fight club is, you do not talk about fight club. Fincher also ended up battling with Fox over the movie's marketing. He wanted to take a creative approach and made a couple of fake PSA videos featuring Brad Pitt and Ed Norton. The two actors appeared in character and advised moviegoers to turn off their cell phones. And they added dark and twisted lines like, no one has the right to touch you in your bathing suit area. It was weird, but very Fincher. His idea was to take an in-your-face assaultive approach to the marketing, but Fox preferred to play it safe by selling it as a big studio film with movie stars and leaning into the fighting aspect by marketing it at wrestling events. Well, the Fox way didn't work. When Fight Club was released in October 1999, it bombed at the box office, earning a total of $37 million in the U.S. on a budget of $65 million. More than one critic said it was an incitement to violence. Several even equated it to fascist propaganda. And on her talk show, an appalled Rosie O'Donnell implored viewers not to see the movie 
And for good measure, she gave away the film's big plot twist. Here's Adam Naiman. If Fight Club and Twitter had existed at the same time on first blush, I think the internet would have exploded. I think Fight Club, for a lot of reasons pertaining to gender and misogyny and, and, and homosexuality and lots of things, would have just broken Twitter. Even now, it's a movie that I think when it had its 20th anniversary, Twitter had little flame-ups. But that's not like if it had been a new release. Naaman says he wasn't a fan of the movie at the time of its release. A film about a subversive anti-capitalist made by a big movie studio for millions of dollars just didn't ring true for him. But he says he would rather have Fight Club than some of the movies that are coming out of Hollywood today. In the 90s, there was still space for films to be incoherent at times and to take risks. And I don't mean to sound old and cranky, I'm only 40, but studio movies now are not about anything or they're about things in ways that are so pre-chewed. Even if it's a left-wing political position, I don't even think Fight Club's left-wing. I'm left-wing, I don't know if I think Fight Club is. Even if it's a studio movie espousing a left-wing position or let's say an anti-capitalist position or or an anti-conservative position, it tells you that. They tell you this so strenuously, they're so desperate to clarify where they're coming from. Ideologically, it's like having your food chewed for you, and it doesn't make for exciting viewing. Fight Club didn't reach cult status until it was released on DVD, and it continued to worm its way into society through video games and Tyler Durden soundbites that remain relevant today. David Fincher has also stayed relevant beyond the 1990s, making many more seminal movies and TV shows, from Zodiac and The Social Network to Gone Girl and Mindhunter. He is widely considered one of the most talented and influential filmmakers of his generation. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have critics. There are many who believe Fincher's work is hyper-stylized, special effects-driven, and fixated on death. And during his career, he's also gained a reputation for being a demanding perfectionist who is never satisfied. Most infamously, Fincher is known for the amount of takes he shoots of each setup. While directors usually average fewer than 10 takes, Fincher operates in a range between 25 and 65. And there have been times when he goes over 100. All that said, Fincher remains one of the most polarizing directors out there but there is no debating his impact. If you're going to say Ridley Scott helped define the look of the 80s, you know, I think Fincher defined the look of the 90s. And I think that that at least two of his movies, at least Seven and Fight Club, become style books and templates and inspirations for a lot of what comes later. Fincher once said about filmmaking, we sculpt time, we sculpt behavior, and we sculpt light. Through his music videos and TV commercials and movies, David Fincher sculpted the look of the 90s. And in some cases, he created a version of ourselves that we didn't want to see, but he made it impossible to look away. Thanks for joining me for this look at the work of David Fincher. And thanks to my great guest, Adam Naiman. Fincher fans must check out his book, David Fincher, Mind Games. I'll put information about Adam and his book in the show notes. If you have a suggestion for a show, you can let me know. Send me a message on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History or on Instagram at That90sPodcast. You can also email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. 
This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.